It's incredible. Just just being even just calling yourself a Jew, um, given everything that we've been through, is is, is an incredible um, accomplishment. And I'm sure, just I'm sure it it just just any mitzvah done by a Jew today reduces God to tears. I'm sure it does. All the more so people who aren't raised with it, and it's not let's say as meaningful to them. Welcome back to JTV Podcasts. Is that what we're calling it, by the way? Is it simple as that? Are you happy with that? This is uh, me running it by you. You're the boss. This is the meeting right now. <laughs> so this week, I thought we'd talk about something that's very close to home to both of us, which is just a Jewish journey. We are, we spoke about this in the past. We have had similar-ish journeys, similar kind of key points going from being aware and around the Orthodox Jewish world in London and then becoming more religious in our late teen, early 20 years. And I want to speak about sort of that kind of journey because I have a lot of chats with some people from all different strokes and lives who have had, who've made the, um, they've gone up the rings of taking up more mitzvot, more laws, or they, they've got more involved in their Judaism, or they've added more meaning to the things they were always doing. And there are a lot of common themes and common pitfalls as well that come up with it. So I thought we could chat about that. And I've got a few key points I wanted to bring up, but just the general general flow of um yeah similar buffs so maybe i'll go over with you what for you thinking back on it and in when, when would you say you started getting really into your, your, your judaism well i i think i think this should be a definitely a uh um a conversation which we are equally engaged in because i want to i want to know your story as well and hear about your experiences because everyone's experiences are different and you can learn f- you know insights about the human psyche and uh, Judaism and what's appealing, what's not, um, through different people's stories. So I definitely would like to um, explore that with you. Um, for me, it was like several. Just there's lots of key uh, milestones along the way. I think while you know, I I grew up. I feel like with a strong British culture, <laughs> and you know, really, I mean, just in some ways, in some ways, felt more naturally instinctively british than i did jewish in some respects um but i I remember when i was about three four five um becoming more aware of my jewish identity and also the fact that not everyone else in britain is jewish which was a bit of a uh a chiddish a bit of (laughs) enlightening uh (laughs) reality for me were you at jewish primary school i went to a jewish kindergarten okay um but then i went went to a cheder yeah uh, on sundays um, but after that, went to a, a non-Jewish school age from like reception onwards. So that's like what is so the end of your school to age eighteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I remember, I would actually when I realised not everyone's Jewish, I would go up to people and say, "Excuse me, are you kosher or Christian?" <laughs> and my mum never stopped me. I said, well, I asked her years <laughs> later, like, why did you never stop me from doing that? And she was just like. Because you, it was good. You were getting to, you know, understanding you're Jewish. You're getting, you know, comfortable with your identity. So, um, and she always hammered into us from a very, very young age. When you get married, you have to marry someone who is Jewish. And um, even though sometimes when she asked me that, I would say pretty, um, <laughs> but I did apparently. I actually did. Um, but the good news is you can have both. Um, but um, I, I. Uh, um yeah i became sort of more aware and i recognized the importance of that um and then i would say the next sort of big milestone for me was probably my um bar mitzvah teacher um who was brilliant and i think it's a bit mental that so much of the time is spent with bar and bar mitzvah students well certainly bar mitzvah students uh learning how to lane uh, from the Torah, a huge chunk of their parsha in a language they don't really understand that they're going to forget a few weeks afterwards. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? Like, we could be teaching kids about the fundamentals of Jewish beliefs and practice and culture and all those things, but, you know, and it's good. It, some people do it hand in hand, and that's great, but I really think the emphasis should be on the latter, not the former. Anyway, luckily, I did have that with uh, this this teacher, a man called Tzvi Khan, and um, I continued learning with him for many years after that. I, I Voluntarily, I said, can I keep learning with him? once a week and and it was just honestly the most 
meaningful part of my week. You, you um, pushed for that age, what, 12, 13? Yeah, you asked yeah I asked my parents and I continued learning with them every week, yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, I, I loved it. I honestly felt the most connected on it. You know, you, could, you know when you're feeling more in tune with your soul and, and, and um, just getting in touch with that. I, I really felt a spiritual nourishment, you know, just, and it was very basic things, just learning about the weekly Torah reading and getting deeper insights in that, talking about stories in Jewish history and, um, you know, um, just really connecting to Judaism. Um, and then, I mean, I don't know how far you want me to go. But why don't you, why don't you, I mean, I'm, if you're going to stop at this point in life, to compare with myself, I went to a Jewish primary school. Mm-hmm. I say that my family are quite traditional, modern Orthodox, United Synagogue in this country, in England. Uh, and so I was a Jewish primary school. By the way, so school. am I, just to be clear. So my, yeah, yeah, my family's like, family very, very similar. Yeah. yeah. So I, I went to, to a Jewish primary school, which meant I was very... A daily Jewish education. It's mad how many hours I must have had and how little I've really got out of it. Mm. But I was used to it, and I didn't know many non-Jews. But it's more when I left primary school and entered secondary school, age eleven, I went to non-Jewish secondary school. Mm. That's when I really got to know non-Jews as friends. I know them around the sort of you know uh, the receptionist at dance work, but I hadn't really become peers. And also, I had many guys who said to me, "I've never met a Jew before," and I had a whole bunch of questions. And the first time I felt like I actually had to. Uh, it was more unique and more individual to me. It was became my thing. Also, maybe I was more naive about this in my younger school years. I always assumed that everyone in my year had a very similar Jewish background, a very similar house at home. To the point where apparently I was once on a Shabbat afternoon and I was with a friend. And someone in my class drove by in the car. She waved out of her mum's car window. And I was in denial that it was her. Because I couldn't have been. She's in our class. I didn't believe that anyone existed sort of really outside of my own my own little bubble my own little world so that's when I became really aware and opened my eyes a bit more that there was more there was less religious Jews more religious Jews and non-Jews and that we all just are mm. human beings so yeah when I started year 7 when I started uh, secondary school my, my father pushed that I would uh, have Jewish lessons outside of school twice a week actually and he the aim of going from my entire high school year is age 11 to 18 but the hope was that if I wanted to, he wasn't pushing for it, but if I wanted to do a gap year, go to Israel and learn after I finished high school, before university, I would be equipped enough to make that choice. I wouldn't feel completely out of my depth. Mm-hmm. And there are funny stories of it where I, at the start, I really didn't care for it. I was very, it was like an extra two, four hours a week for, a, for an 11-year-old who already had a busy school schedule that seemed to get in the way. I used to, there was once a time where I hid in the downstairs cupboard in my house to get out of a Sunday morning lesson. And I remember, like, hiding there for a good 20 minutes, and I realised that my mum was actually getting to the point of panic, where she... It goes like, oh, where's Sam? To, like, did he leave the house? He's 11. Does he have his phone on my phone? His phone's not picking up his phone. And I wrote a letter saying I wanted to quit. This letter was then read out to the said teacher at my bar mitzvah, which is a little bit awkward. <laughs> then, like, I started, I didn't have that... I, I was less grateful for it. Hmm. I had these lessons up until I was 18. And the latter years, when I was 16, 17, 18, I started to appreciate them more. And I appreciate them a ton more after the fact. Uh, but bizarrely, it was just sort of a thing I, was, I felt more forced into, mm. the lessons. And it's like a stage where I was very my own individual, I am a Jew, different to other people around me, and that means I should be meaningful to me. At the same time, not so appreciative of the um, kind of unique access I had. I also had bar mitzvah lessons where I learned the laning, how to read the notes of the Torah about vowels. My dad taught me. The last time I probably learned proper Jewish stuff with my father, and it was very, uh, very meaningful. And we only stuck in those lessons to the reading, but I was fortunate to have an external couple of teachers who helped me with just general Jewish ideas. In fact, nowadays, there's, um, there's a guy who's come to his bar mitzvah who I learn with once a week, and he has two teachers. He's also in a non-Jewish school. One teacher goes through the laning, but his father pressed to find someone who could do just the general Jewish sort of outlook and uh, give him some sort of awareness what right now we're going through the shabbat morning sudur the service just so when he shows up on shabbat morning he's familiar with the tunes if he comes like what time of day what roughly what they're up to different keywords choreography is what i call it and um, it's something so he feels more equipped also we're trying to hopefully fit in deeper more founding key fundamental jewish ideas within that so i mean yeah it's, it's similar but sort of different slightly different um environments mm-hmm. we place ourselves in but i think like you i'm sure i'm curious about this as well 
must have been maybe 14, 15, that sort of like slightly more mature, slightly more intellectual teenage point. Yeah, so so what happened when I was 16, uh, a very key moment in my journey was that I, I read a book called Beyond the Reasonable Doubt. Um, and it basically tries to make the argument for an intellectual argument for um, God's existence. Um, Is it a Jewish book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, it's by, by a rabbi called Shmuel Waldman, I think. I think. Shmuel, rabbi Shmuel, I think that's his name. Um, if you look up Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, you'll find it. And But there was a specific chapter which completely uh, got me hooked um, called The Seven Wonders of Jewish History. <laughs> and uh, it's based on a class, I, th- I, I, I think Aish certainly adapted it, um, but it basically goes through seven things that have happened in Jewish history and how the Torah clearly foretold these things. And given the fact that we know the Torah is, it hasn't changed, as in it's been, we have evidence of it existing 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. You know, so I mean, I know it's 3,334 no, years I'm, since I'm, we were I'm, given it, but I'm saying there's evidence of, no. because what, what people might say is, oh, but they changed it to fit in with the things that happened. Your friends like Dead Sea Scrolls and Carbon. Yeah, exactly, and the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Um, but the point yeah, is yeah. that we have evidence that it's existed for thousands of years, and it says certain things are going to happen which go against all the laws of history all the laws of the way other nations of history is manifest um and it just was so strikingly obvious to me that um this argument is very strong because it basically goes through um these seven things and the seven things are the fact that the jewish people have been few in number which the Torah prophesizes, they, you know, compared to other nations, and uh, would also be scattered uh, around the world throughout most of the history. I mean, is there any other nation that's experienced that isn't bound by a common land, language, and culture? We have, we, we, we have been bound by that, except we haven't been in that land or haven't always used that common language and haven't shared that common culture. But, um, you know, and and also intensely persecuted. There's a whole, you know language of words used to describe the kind of persecution the Jewish people uh, experienced, you know, blood libels, ghettos, uh, um, holocaust, pogrom. Um, And uh, then it says that the Jewish people will survive, and we've survived despite those things that would normally doom a people. Um, And, you know, while all these other nations and empires have risen and gone, and also... You know, the Torah was convinced that, Ab- that the families of the earth would bless themselves through Abraham, that Abraham's name would be made great, despite the fact that at the time, the majority of the world was pagan, polytheistic, um, convinced that the Judaism and Jewish values would be a light unto the nations, and the majority of the world now believe in the God of Abraham. And then also it talks about this relationship between the Jewish people and the land of Israel, that when the Jewish people are there, it will blossom, and when they leave despite other nations and empires conquering the land, it will be desolate. And and also prophesizing the seventh one was the Jewish people's return. And to me, this was just like, I'm being more, I, I believe, if you look at, if you have an objective analysis of Jewish history and, and how, how the Torah uh, foretells certain things, you're being, I believe, willfully blind or subjective. If you, if you want to, if, if, if you sort of say, well, there's, there's no divine hand at work here, in my view. Um, and so I remember, like, I just looked at this. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, and, you know, it sort of concretized certain things that I was feeling intuitively about my Jewish identity and Judaism. But one of the curious things about um, the human psyche is that just because you know something, is, you conclude that something is true, that as um, the founder of the Muslim movement said, what was his name? Rabbi Yisrael Rab- Salanta. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. He said that the greatest distance in the earth is between the head and the heart. <laughs> and uh, that was certainly the case um, because, you know, yes, I was more inspired. Yes, I was more interested. Um, but, you know, if, you, it's like if, if you're like convinced there's a God, well, you're going to start acting as if there's a God, right? But no, nothing too dramatic changed in the way I behaved um, or I acted. But did you feel at that point it became very sort of relevant to you in the 21st century? Because I, mean, I, I, I knew a lot of these sort of big Jewish ideas before that when I learned in school, but they felt very distant, very hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. Absolutely. I felt and like... And it became sort of like... 
it also applies to me now. Yes, absolutely. I felt like, wow, this is real. This is true. This is, uh, and we've, you know, there's still more to be done. Um, but I don't, but for some reason it didn't, my behavior didn't change too much, but it just, it just solidified my Jewish convictions. Um, but the real thing that, that really got me going was going to Poland. Um, as is the case with a lot of, with a lot of people. Um, but just when I went to, um, Poland, you know, my grandfather actually was literally escaped weeks before the Nazis invaded, um, and got to his town. Um, in fact, his apartment was, uh, taken over by the Gestapo and they used it as their headquarters in his area. Um, and I, I just, I, we actually did a, I did a video about this, um, where I just remember there were a few key moments for me, but I just sort of feeling the, I describe in this video how we walked into this tunnel, this memorial tunnel, and at, um, on, 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 on the walls of each side, there were lists that the Nazis had with loads and loads of names, of Jewish names, and there were red lines crossed through all of them because the red lines meant that they had been sent on, put on the trains and off to, to their deaths. Um, and I was at the back of this line, the whole Jewish group were walking through, and they get to the end and they sort of uh, all standing there holding hands, singing, and I just remember just looking back at all those red lines crossed off and looking forward and seeing a, a, a living, breathing Jewish people, and I was like, this is just... It just put into poetry what I'd, what I'd realised about Jewish history a year or two prior. You know, it put into reality. And it was just one of the most awesome moments of my life. I mean, yeah, it, just, it was just absolutely incredible, deeply spiritual moment. And I really, uh, yeah, I really welled up. And I, I, just, I just felt very close to, to God at that moment. I felt just, just the reality of it all just really um kind of <laughs> fell like a ton of bricks on top of me in a very good way um and that's when after that i decided i want to go and study in israel for a year you were like what 16 this was when i was 17, 17. going on 18 at this point now so year 13 i was in year 13 yes yeah. so, yeah, so i, I did it was, it was a j roots tri j roots yes trip. Yes, yes, so yes i did an identical trip i did it uh, i was the year below you in school I remember from that trip, a lot of people felt incredibly inspired. I went with a bunch of people from non-Jewish schools, and I was probably one of the more religious people on that trip. We saw in the past that even though I went to non-Jewish school, we went to what I call the frumest, most religious of the non-Jewish schools, uh, with a high percentage of sort of yarmulke, kippah wearers. But I remember a lot of guys felt very inspired, and people would say, I'm going to now wear to fill in, I'm going to go to shul every week, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And they had this sort of this raging inspiration. I don't know how people kept it more than the week afterwards. So. I mean, were there any stages for you where you felt the gear shift in your personal life and then you translated that into actual actions? Or yeah, I'm now going to go to synagogue every week. I'm going to ask my rabbi these questions. Do you, is there anything that was it purely just in, internal? Well, d don't forget, this goes back to that cognitive dissonance thing mm. again, you know, where the connecting the head and the heart. Uh, don't forget that there's only three days after we saw the sea splits that we started complaining to God about, to, to Mamasha about, will we, will there be water to drink? Can we trust God? Mm. And, um, you know, by the way, they hadn't had any water for three days. So give them, give them, I think, <laughs> so give them some credit. Um, but the point is, you know, it, it is hard. I mean, at the same time, I think these things leave, even if people don't trade, you know, I was once asked about how, how can you measure the effect JTV videos have had on people? And I say, well, I can't always measure it, but that doesn't mean it's not having an impact. And sometimes people, you know, they're, they're, they can be touched very deeply by these trips and it might not have changed anything immediately on ex externally in how they behave or act, but but, but it, it, it sort of, it plants certain seeds for future, and, and also just for a certain consciousness and awareness that may not be manifest in any specific action or external perception, but it, but it can be very much there. Um... You know, someone may decide not to marry out just from one of these things. You may never know that, but they just... Be. So for me, um, I... Well, the big the big sort of external change for me was I decided to start wearing a kippah, uh, which I think is quite a big deal. If, you, if you're not wearing a kippah and you start yeah. wearing one, it's a, it's a real statement. You know, it means that you are taking on a responsibility to be an ambassador for the Jewish people and for, for God. Um, I'm not saying I get, I'm not saying I always get that right. I don't, but that's the that's the aim behind it, and it means you're also putting certain things. It, it it's 
you're making a certain statement about about who you are and what you value and and you're less likely to get involved in you know the other things that perhaps late teens might be doing um and uh you know it's it's a it's a statement and it it takes it takes real um pride and conviction to do that um and i remember someone said to me when i was at uh, when i went back to school and started wearing one they said oh i bet that'll be off within a week <laughs> And of course, I said challenge accepted. So they taught um, any teenage guy so to ten, not do something. Ten years later, yeah, ten years later, it was the best thing I could, that someone could have said to me, to be honest, yeah. because I I like to uh, be uh, you know contrarian. Um, so um, yeah, so so that's that's what happened. And I decided I wanted to go to yeshiva to study in Israel, even though I had no idea what yeshiva really meant. Mm. I really didn't know what it meant. I mean, I, I'd never learned Talmud before. I'd never really learned that much other than just like the weekly Torah reading gaining nice insights into it um but I did go and I'm glad that I did yeah I'm thinking about this actually uh I remember on it, it wasn't we had some rabbis on the trip mm. and they said to us if any of the boys they want to wake up a few minutes early and daven and pray with the rabbis and wear there to fill in mm. that meet at this time in the hotel and I, I just, we had it in my in my school we had a sort of a minion We'd, we'd oven and we'd pray in the morning a few times in the week and occasionally I'd bring them in more to get the croissant and breakfast afterwards mm-hmm. but I would never be that independent in it. I, would never, I, would never, I would very rarely if ever go to synagogue in the week even on, on holidays by myself mm. I've been on summer camps where uh, the, the level of richness in the summer camp was that everyone would pray three times a day so everyone had to show up and they were dragged in mm-hmm. but no one really wanted to be there more, especially the kids and I think we resented it yeah. for the first time I remember it was because it was optional for us I didn't do it to show off to anyone, but I don't think, I hope not. But it was optional to me that if you want to, you can pray with the rabbis. I, I think I made it every single morning. We are the generation that um, will not be told what to do. Mm. But it was meaningful to me. I, I, I was shocked by it, that it became sort of... Of course, I'm I, saying... I didn't know what I was wearing. I didn't know I was wearing them correctly. Yeah. But the fact that I was choosing to make an effort, to, especially in Poland, to, to pray and to sort of be a bit more Jewish... Mm on that trip and I was choosing to no one was forcing me into it it was completely optional that's what I'm saying it's a good thing yeah, it's, it's a good thing that we're the generation that doesn't like to be taught what to do because that makes our choices all the more so much more powerful mm. and I think it's very pre-messianic um, <laughs> because no it is because I believe you because throughout history we've been uh, there's been a level of intimidation to do to in, when it comes to religion and, and or thinking of reward and punishment these things don't work anymore with people they don't even compute. We 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 can't. We we value autonomy, self autonomy above all else, and wanting to. Do. So then, how? Your truth. Mrs. Well, not necessarily your truth, that? but I'm just saying. I'm just saying that's a separate battle. That's about relative relative truth. I'm just saying that this idea of being told what to do. We value autonomy so highly, but that means that if we choose to do things, out, it will be truly out of choice, right? And so, if we choose to. Uh, do a mitzvah and have a relationship with God. You know, or have a, the 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 more you're able to choose something and you choose it freely, the more powerful the relationship is and it becomes. And that's what I think God is trying to do with us. He's trying to, you know, throughout history we've we've um, we started off as slaves to Pharaoh, and then God says, "I want you to be servants, my servants, servants to the Torah," which. Uh, paradoxically will give you true freedom because you're only free when you escape the ego and escape yourself but as we go through our history we end up being at the, at the final stages slaves to ourselves totally self-obsessed the me generation and what's going to happen is we're going to realize how being a slave to ourselves and to our ego and to our own wants actually leads us all to be miserable which is what we're seeing in today's world people are miserable mm. we've never had more materialism material abundance physical abundance uh yes people have challenges their lives but you know there's what people what someone living 100 years ago would give to li- to live today in terms of the you know the things that we have and yet we're, we're not happy we always what we all want more and we're just not satisfied with our lot and and we're pushed to want more through advertising and social media and jealousy and all that kind of stuff and what's going to happen is we're going to realize how much it sucks to be focused on your own needs and then we will freely choose because out of a desire to want to no longer be 
a slave to ourself. We're going to freely choose to nullify the ego and turn towards giving to others and having a relationship with God. And that that's that feels very messianic to me. Do you, do you think you started to realise that when, say, post-Poland, final year of school, surrounded by people where they're not living by these values, and you inject them into your own life, and you feel a, sense, a more meaning in the things that you do and a bit more happiness and the opposite of misery? Did you ever notice those sort of comparisons or you think maybe only later? I definitely felt a sense of much, a great sense of purpose. And for me, that's always been way more important than, I've never been like a wild guy that needs to like have fun in his teen years. Or, and that's just not been part of the way I've been made up. You know, I don't, I don't, it's not something I enjoy partying or all that kind of stuff. It's just, it was never part of my makeup. Um, and it's like, I remember a rabbi saying to me, there were like two guys in my, uh, yeshiva with me and one of them was like you know a guy who was like a bit of a wild kid who like was a bit rebellious and one of them said to that guy he said you see you you needed to get all that out of your system and he turned to me he said oh you never had it in your system <laughs> <laughs> and uh he was right he was right um but um yeah what was the question again the question no, was it's all about when you saw oh, yes meaning and purpose life, so yeah so it, it did um I had a bit of a, I think, a slight misunderstanding about God and reward and punishment and all those kind of things, which I think slightly clouded my relationship with Judaism for a few years. But growing past that... Um, Was that more of like a fearful? Yeah, that's the thing. See, see it's, it's very important that once you come to a realisation about God and Judaism that, you, that it's done in a healthy way because God wants us to have a healthy relationship with him. And I think that I was fed a bit too much of the fire and brimstone stuff, which actually can be left to other religions and isn't really a Jewish approach. And actually only the Rambam says should only be applied to children. Um, but unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of that going around today. And so I was a little bit, because I'm very much just take people out there. I don't really take things with a pinch of salt when I'm less, learning from rabbis. And I think you spoke, you wanted to speak a bit about choosing rabbis. But mm. that was that was something that I, fe I fell into that trap. And actually, it ends up making God appear like a monster, uh, you know, fascistic kind of monster ways, just punishing people left, right and centre. And, uh, you know, we're worried about lightning bolts, not not lightning bolts, but bad things happening. To, I mean, it makes God seem to be like some kind of dictator, basically, whereas actually it's a complete misunderstanding of God. God is, if you read the Torah with the right frame of mind, is exceptionally sensitive, kind, uh caring and slow to anger at slow to anger giving yeah but but also um desperately cra desperately craving a relationship with his people uh and vulnerable in that sense because are we gonna what are we gonna do are we gonna turn respond and we have he gave us free choice that leaves him vulnerable mm. um and it's a totally new way of looking at different way of looking at god and so yeah i did i did fall into, i i felt i've always felt since coming to judaism a great sense of meaning and purpose but in terms of a healthy relationship with with judaism it's taken a bit of time to get there but i'm and it's, and it's it's a life's work you know it's a life's work mm. actually this this links quite nicely to the kind of my next major line of questioning about I think it comes a lot of people had this issue a lot where they see it as the phrase in Yeshiva was all or nothing. Is Judaism an all or nothing religion? And the answer is neither. People, I, I, and people have this mentality, which is like, if I'm not doing all the things I see my from religious neighbor doing, then I must be sinning. And therefore, it's so not attainable for me. That's not even worth trying. They, they re-distance themselves from it. Yeah, well, that, that needs to be... But the quicker that's diminished, that, that mindset, then the easier it is for someone to kind of create their own personal ladder and their own personal stages of, of building yes. a connection. That, that, that needs to be shot down immediately, the all or nothing thing. Look, where, where does it come from? Where do you think, like, do you think it is originated from I schools? believe it comes from fear. It's fear of if I don't do all of it, then I'm going to be punished and I'm going to get, I'm, you know, I've got, and it's, it's seeing the mitzvot as like a rat race and you've got to pick all up the it's like it's like mario you know he like you sort of move along and you've got to like pick up all the little like the dollar signs or whatever i don't know how it goes but like you've got to get you got to get it all before you want to win the game you know it's like a rat race um but um look it took us 50, 49 days to get to mount sinai you know the, one of the messages of that is growth should be slow and incremental and take time and actually, we know from life and other experiences, whether it's building muscle in a gym or trying to fix certain habits, that incremental change is the only sustainable change. It has to be incremental. 
And by the way, even then, after the 50 years of Mount Sinai, we ended up worshipping a golden calf. We f- crashed back down. So even then, maybe it, t- it took more time. You know, 40 years in the wilderness. Well, this um, thing's a bit to Poland as well, where people can shoot up. They exactly. Don't, they don't build yeah. on that with incremental... Stages. Exactly, it has to be incremental it's because, and we always, we, I mean, we're always told this with Yom Kippur as well that you know you should uh, do things incrementally. By the way, sometimes if you feel like you can take on, a, you're just gonna have a great burst of inspiration. There's a bit more that you can take on than you than what you might describe as incremental. Mm. Fine, but but I think the best approach is that, and you know, there's, um, I think it's in um, Rav Dessler's one of his safaram, he talks about um, the point of Bechira, the point of free will. Everyone has their own unique point of free will. And sl- the idea of life is to slowly c- climb up your point of free will. So everyone, so, so when you talk about all or nothing, God, your relationship with God is totally unique to you. So it's not, so, so for every part, no one's doing all or nothing. Everyone has more to do, right? So the, 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 I don't even understand this language of all or nothing. No one is nothing and no one is all. You know, <laughs> so so you have a point of free will. So so for some people, it's are they going to put on to fill in today? For other people, it's are they going to put on to fill in with with thought and with care and, and having a thinking about you know I'm doing this to because God wants me to do it. Um, for other people, it's another thing. And so you look apply this to other relationships as well. I mean, imagine you know saying to thinking about a friend. Um, what, what am I gonna? Uh, what am I gonna? You know, do for for his birthday? Well, it's all or nothing, isn't it? And you've only known him for two weeks. <laughs> well, chill out. You know, <laughs> relationships slowly build slowly over time, and so all or nothing is actually. I think it's quite uh, harmful. Look, everyone knows sometimes a lot could be a little for someone. Sometimes a little could be a lot for other people. So there's no set rules but i just think the mindset of all or nothing actually i i i I don't even understand what it means um but i think the mindset comes from what i was describing as like a kind of rat race approach to mitzvah which really isn't uh i don't think it's right it's funny the reason i grinned when you mentioned robert desler Mm. So I, I was thinking about that exact same phrase on the way here today Uh uh-huh i heard it put very nicely by rabbi this week where he he phrased it as you'll never punish for something that is above you the fact that you're not you know spending every single living minute of your day learning torah and trying to be the most intense and best you possible that's not that's not in your realm that's above that's above you you're not going to punish for that i don't even like the word punish no, no, because but likewise you don't get rewarded for something that's below you i know the words punishment reward might have connotations but you don't the fact that i didn't beat up an old lady when i walked past it on the way here today is not i don't get rewarded for that because that's so below me. what i would say uh, i personally think a much better much more healthy way of looking at it it's mm. not talking about reward and punishment but saying you don't upset god okay because it's like you don't harm the relationship by failing to do something that's above no, you but i'd say and upset you god or make god happy you don't necessarily boost the relationship yeah, but what I'm saying is, okay. But I, but I genuinely think thinking about it on God's terms, thinking about the other, is the healthiest way to think about it. So, you know, I just think we're past reward and punishment now. In terms, of we, it doesn't, it doesn't motivate us anymore because it's because it's selfish. Reward and punishment. How's this going to affect me? Mm. And we don't like that. I'm saying we're in the me generation, and we we're gonna, we're everyone's slowly realizing that it sucks to be obsessed with me, right? And even Pierre Kevot says, don't do it for the reward. Serve your master, not for the rewards. So what does that mean? It means serve it for him because he wants it. Hashem wants it. And Hashem, and it's like, look, it's like a, so to follow on with this, uh, this um, example that you gave, um, it's like, let's say I see a friend every week. I go, you know, I, I, I always make sure after, after work, I'll go see him for, for, for 20 minutes. And then I say, can we make it every two weeks? He's going to be a bit upset, you know, because it's like, or can we make it once a month? You know, so that level of relationship where I was putting in the effort and now I'm dramatically reducing it, right? That's my point of free will. That's where the relationship's at, right? So, or as you want to call it, the point of free will. So the, so it's not that the friend's going to punish me. He's just going to be upset, you know? And, so, and he might try and do more maneuvers, <laughs> right? To try and encourage me to do it more regularly again, you, right? You left your hoodie behind. Yeah, exactly. Or that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's never... So punishment, again, just makes God sound so... 
like a monster. It's just it's 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 only because he wishes for us to be close to him that he does anything. You know, so I think that's a much more beautiful way of looking at it. I mean, even the word fear. I think did we discuss this? I think we discussed La- it previously. Last time we yeah, spoke, we discussed. We it. We'd have to go back to fear. it. Yeah, just having in mind that Rav Desler. So when I heard about the rabbi, he gave and he phrased it very kindly to me this week. He said the one thing you can choose because those things are your circumstances, your external environment, and the way you the house you're brought up in, your your skills you have, your brain. The thing that you can control, you should choose, is one's chevra, one's community, and that can take many forms, right? That can take friends, that can take rabbis or uh, leaders or role models or just the people that we kind of the things that we let in the. the um, the, the books that we read and the people that we follow and listen to. So I'm curious also, just going back also to the very personal, this age of 16, 17, 18, post-Poland, sort of developing your own sort of free, or maybe say before Israel, was there anyone you were turning to? Anyone you felt like, oh, a few if questions popped up after Poland, you felt you can go to them and speak about these ideas, or did you keep them all sort of bottled in? No, I did. I did. There were a few people, a few rabbis that I found. I mean, I was privileged to be able to run the Jewish assembly at my school. Uh So, you know, you had about 300 people coming in every week and a third of them weren't even Jewish. And um, I was able to invite in these different uh, Jewish educators and speakers and rabbis and rabbitsons and all that kind of stuff. And um, it was amazing. Um, And I really developed a relationship with a couple of uh, key rabbis. Um, And... Yeah, I would say that's important. I'd say it's actually probably more important in my post-yeshiva years, having that kind of relationship with a few people. Um, I think there's a real balance because I think there is also something, sometimes things were pushed to me that you've got to be too, put too many, put loads of fences up and not interact with people who aren't. There is some of that thing, a real hesitance to not um, in, engage as much with people or socialize with people as much that aren't, aren't quote-unquote religious which i really reject um i don't think it works i think also again we're in the old self-autonomy generation that just doesn't want to um, be so feel so restricted and i think it suppresses our 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 sense of self and also i think i mean look i i go back to this because i think they are shining examples of this look at chabad they go into hawaii they go to (laughs) thailand and they take their family there and they, 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 do they compromise on their values or who they are? Certainly not. I think, and I learned this from going to a non-Jewish school, that, um, look, I'm not saying you don't need, that it's ve- you need, I'm not saying you don't need mentors and friends who share your values and that can give you a sense of, you absolutely, human beings are social creatures that need, that's very important. But that doesn't mean you stop there. That doesn't mean they're the only people you interact with. We're meant to, you know, first of all, when it comes to Jewish people, we are all one. And if if one of our brothers or sisters is hurting, that that affects the whole klal. And um, you know, can you even? I mean, it like in the. T- I think some of the um, things that we learn about, let's say, in Talmudic writings, which are called, ask us to be careful of mixing with people who are, let's say, heretics. That was at a time where you had you know, open miracles or we're living in the land of Israel where the stakes were much higher or we knew a lot more and therefore it was much more willful disobedience to act like that. Whereas today, people who aren't keeping things, can, can they even be slightly accountable? And by the way, there's a lot of people in the religious world who I think are badly pr- uh, pr- misunderstanding uh, uh, Judaism. It's a Judaism governed by, f- um, you know, f- it's a sort of fire and brimstone Judaism governed by fear that's very black and white, um, quite literally. And uh, so I, I, I reject wholeheartedly this idea that we should put up fences and barriers in terms of who we interact with, and even with non-Jews. God cares about all of humanity. And I've, you know, I've actually rekindled some of my friendships with, with non-Jewish people who I was at school with um, because it shouldn't affect who we interact with. If you're clear on who you are and what you're about and what's important and you've chosen it, it's not going to go anywhere, you know. It's also in in those states when you're a bit uncertain of who you are. That's yeah, when but, it I, harder. but I, yeah, I'm thinking to myself. I agree. When I was about say 17, yeah, and a stronger, more personal Jewish identity, uh, I felt quite shy about it. I didn't really, even though I had a lot of people in my life who were religious and would be good people to go to with questions, who would give me good answers. Mm. I felt sort of maybe it's just my own personal anxiety or shyness. I didn't know where to turn to. 
And so I kept a lot of it quite internal. I used to sort of, I wouldn't, people I wanted to ask, but I felt too scared to sort of let them know that I was thinking about these things. I would just imagine what they would say and try and like picture, have conversations in my head to run through their certain ideas, which mm. is not that healthy. And I, I um, as one. Sorry, what's not healthy? I think just to keep it put, to not speak things out and to keep sort of. Um, yes. And to keep it quiet. I think it's because I felt this belief in God, the way it was perceived, and I, I perceived it, and the way I, I, th- I thought people around me saw it was quite a. Um, there were two sides of it. There was the very religious side, who I just assumed, I never asked them, assumed that they were solid. I assumed that they had either worked these things out or it was just obvious to them that there was Hashem in the world and Torah made sense and that that wasn't a, a question for them. On the other hand, I thought people who uh, were non-Jewish or very scientifically minded or very, as a Western approach, the very notion of a deity or anything bigger than what we see with our own two eyes was laughable. So I couldn't turn, that was most of my peers, so I couldn't turn to them and say to them, I believe there's God because I thought I'd just be laughed out. And I thought I couldn't go to these religious lots because if I were to tell them, you know, I've got doubts or I've got questions, that would also be sort of a how could you? So I, and this, this is all, I've learned, thank God, later on, that these were complete mis, uh, misnomers and poor presumptions, but I didn't have the braveness, the, the bravery to, to find out, really. Mm-hmm. I think I had one friend, about 17, who was very religious, from a very religious home, and they were talking to me about just sort of their own questions. I remember listening to them thinking like, I didn't know these people could ask these questions. I didn't know that they like it was okay for a religious, very religious, black hat type family to like you know in the, at my age have those questions. Is there a god? Is it meaningful to me? Is it personal to me? And I, I, I it was just it was mad. I, I never spoke to the person about it because I was, I was terrified. I couldn't let know that I also had questions. But the fact that they, they, they raised those points of me. And then left just opened a whole new avenue to me. Mm. Where I was like, these these are things. There's a point in school where I remember I went to a classroom and a kid's about five years younger than me, so maybe twelve years old, uh, said to me, "You're Jewish, right?" Because I had a kippah on my head. I said, "Yeah." And he went, "All right, does that mean you believe in like miracles and all the stories in the Bible and stuff?" Uh, his voice was not as low as I'm doing it now. And I said yes because I felt like I had to. But the way he phrased it, the way I said it in response, I felt like I was, he was saying, you believe in fairies and ghosts and magic. And I was like, like a little child. And I felt like such an idiot to say yes. And I was so angry with myself. I didn't have the, um, the strength to... I didn't care what the 12-year-old thought. But I was so bothered that I didn't feel that convinced of my own answer. I was 17 years old. I was doing a yes. lot of Jewish stuff. And it would only make sense I would do it if I really believed in why I was doing it and I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I didn't have an answer for this kid. And it really festered in me. Yeah. And I remember at one point, maybe a week or two afterwards, I was like, I'm sitting in bed late at night. It must have been about 1, 2 a.m. And I just woke up and I made a 10-minute voice note, which I still I found recently, where I tried to prove God to myself. Really? And I created some, some massive um, kafira, basically, blasphemous uh, ideology, which I, I, I read for recently. I was like, that, that's crazy. But it sort of eased me up a bit and put me to rest. What did you say? It was something, it was, I don't know it was that blasphemous, but it was sort of how, like... Um, there, it seemed obvious to me that there's something more in this world than just what we saw. Something that had to be greater. So let's call that thing God. Mm. And then the fact that God has now made me in this Jewish home and said, right, you must worship me. I don't know what that meant, but that I must worship him. Now, the avenue he's given me is this Jewish home with these Jewish laws and only the ones I saw around me. So therefore, what I must be doing is take everything I've learned about, the, the way I understand Shabbat and kosher and Judaism, and follow those and that's what God wants me to do. So it never occurred to me, I didn't like to bring the idea of, you know, I should actually develop these ideas or grow more or that there was an absolute truth for absolute purpose or the fact of why God would want to worship, uh, want me to worship him. Mm-hmm. But like that, that the fact, and they can just find, all right, that, that's why I am who I am. And it's not my role to learn more. And I, but that, that really put me at ease. Mm. And I wonder if, I, if way, I someone to speak to would help. Well, that kid, what I would say to him is I'd say, well, I believe I believe in God. I think there's a there's, I, I, I'm convinced there's a God, right? Mm. So why would a miracle be too hard for God? God could do anything, right? Do you accept that? If there's a God, He could split the sea, couldn't He? He created the world. He could do anything. Yes, fine. And I say fine, but why are there no miracles now? Ah, oh, well, that's another question, isn't it? Yeah. Why are there no miracles today? Because well, God, well, that, this is us now, Dean. Yes, king. yes. Well, I believe. At the time, this I didn't even make that jump. 
I understand, I understand. I'm just saying, I'm not for so, anyone, I, I did, anyone I, out I there listening the who's concerned about a 12-year-old kid saying something, or an adult, because it's, an, it's something an adult might say as well. It, it was a smart, smart question. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it's a, is it a smart question? I, mean, I, I, don't know, question. I don't know why he was asking mine. just wanted to question. antagonize me or just tease he, me. He, 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 he could have asked more yeah. film team I supported and laughed at them. It's a teasing thing, but look. But thank if, God he did it. Look, is is God scoffed on such an easy level? Not as much because. So then my question, then the point is like, okay, so if, that, if if there is a God, if you if you accept that premise, then why is it so hard for God to do miracles? So he probably didn't accept that there was a God, but then, I, I, you know, again, I also think that that's fairly um, that leaves you with big scientific questions, but, which is, what caused, the beginning. Of the universe. The beginning of the universe is, is, a, is a question itself. I don't think many people, if they, um, in that discussion, are bothered by the miracles because they understand it's, it's about is there a God or not. If yeah. there is, they're quite yeah. comfortable with what could have happened. Maybe. And if there isn't, then. And we haven't got, at least by modern standards of proof, that many, if any, examples of proper miracles that can't be explained beyond just general human existence and biology and all that. Right. That yeah. yeah. God so likes like, to operate within nature. Yeah. So I, I don't. The key thing is the timing. <laughs> Like, like like a good joke, it's all about timing. Yeah, exactly. But it's, I don't think it's, it's... Maybe this question wasn't as sharp as I first thought. But it, it still, it, it festered me and bothered me. I thought it was... Thank God it happened. To thank God that, it, that, that I, I think I needed it. But yeah. it's... I, I've actually... I, I've ranted at different Jewish organisations in this country since. Uh, so it's a little avail. Uh, that only because I had a very similar background, if not many, to many of my peers... And because of a few unique scenarios like that, they pushed me into Israel and yeshiva and a more more religious maybe upbringing, or, or, or I am today, and hopefully what I'll be the rest of my life and, and, and on that journey. But I had to, by chance, I say by chance, but by chance, or as an individual, find them. And so many guys were in these institutions where they didn't find them. I think Nothing is by chance. But I think what I bo- bothered by me, by these lawyers' organizations, was maybe the internal hi- hypocrisy. Uh-huh. Where they were, they would be on the on the out on the outlook. They would say, "It's what we do. We pray every day, and we keep kosher, and we keep Shabbat, and we daven, and we wear tefillin, and all these sort of things." And this is the image they put out. I didn't feel that they believed in the real reason why, and so it made no sense to me why they would do it. Go on, elaborate a bit. I, it's the term that's been put, coined to me. Uh, someone said to me as social orthodoxy, but it's sort of what means that you do what you do. Because people see what you're doing is correct. Like when you have guests round, you'll you will have challah and you will bench afterwards on Shabbat. But you, if it's just you guys at home, you're quite chill. You'll only eat in a kosher restaurant in Golders Green in London. And yet, when you're abroad, you're not so bothered about. You won't eat pig because that's a that's a line. But you're not so bothered about different laws and all these sort of things where it's very um, socially bound and maybe even peer pressure. Yeah, that, that's my view now of what, what why it comes to be. But at a time, I just saw it as just. If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in mitzvot, you don't mean to have a put power with you, then why are you limiting your life by so many laws that you don't care for? Well, and vice versa, if you do believe in them, then why aren't you doing them? Why are we only doing ha- going halfway? If we really believe this is the way, why do we only do the mitzvot that we that mi- our grandparents or grandparents did, and some mitzvot we're not trying at all? Okay, so this needs to be broken it? down a little bit. So, is most of my teenage angst all coming out now? <laughs> It's not look. It's not typical teenage acts. You should know that. <laughs> T- teenage acts is usually teenager. other things. So. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, good point. Um, <laughs> so that is another thing about itself. <laughs> no. Yeah. Just you you probably I, should have seen a shrink. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I remember. I remember though. I think about like teenage acts. I remember uh, on a Monday morning in the sixth form common room, mm-hmm. so age seventeen, eighteen where the guys would come back with their tales of the conquest on the weekend and what they got up to. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I didn't really go to house parties and I didn't really know the guys who had them. I didn't, I'd been to a couple and never really liked them. But I asked them, what do you do? What is the appeal? I'd ask them quite direct questions. And all their answers seemed based, predicated on the fact that you have to get drink and drink and drink to get to a level of drunk so that you can enjoy whatever they're trying to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And that was the hypocrisy. And so I was like, well, if it's that fun, 
You don't need to drink to get drunk. Yeah, still. I don't know about that. I think about it Purim. Purim's yeah. fun, though, isn't it? All right, I'm, I'm a football fan. I can enjoy a game of football. I can enjoy a game of football more than being and some friends enjoy it together. Look, drinking does release inhibitions, um, and teenagers have a lot of inhibitions. So, but if, I, if I could only enjoy football whilst drunk, I wouldn't watch football. <laughs> so that's my point. Yeah, I get that, but there's there is something. Look, whatever. I mean, this is a whole separate discussion about drinking, but um, <laughs> I think part of the problem is doing it too regularly and all that kind of stuff, and but whatever i mean there's worse things but um, I'm, I'm not against drinking i was um, confused why they were doing it just to become someone they weren't which wasn't yeah they clearly didn't want so look so so um in terms of in terms of this social orthodoxy thing mm. this was one of the reasons why by the way that god says he, he exiled us because we were we were loving it up, living it up in the land of Israel and doing all the things, but we forgot we put, took God out of the equation. We were just enjoying. I believe this is one of the reasons we were just enjoying all the mitzvot and the lifestyle, but actually, where was God in all of it? And so you can certainly say that on the one hand. On the other hand, there is something inherently good about people doing mitzvot, regardless of their reason. Because they do have, it does have a sp- spiritual impact. Also, it means that their continuity will potentially mean that their kids will do it, and they're more likely. You know, the very fact that we're doing mitzvot for any reason at all, given you know what the Jewish people have been through, given where we're at in history, is a miracle, and it's amazing. I think it should be absolutely applauded and and and, and, and incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, you know. We haven't heard from God for 3,334 years now. Um, not, not so directly. Not so directly. Exactly. Not yeah. so directly. And yet the fact that we're still doing this, given everything that we've been through, is absolutely incredible. Also, I would say that I think people's reasons for doing mitzvot, you know, even uh, are, are comp- complex. And it comes back to all this cognitive dissonance stuff. I'm sure there's a part of them which is doing it for spiritual reasons, even if they don't realize it. Um and I think there is deep value in them in people doing mitzvah, even if it is mindless or for cultural reasons. It's incredible. Just just be even just calling yourself a Jew, um, given everything that we've been through, is is, is an incredible um, accomplishment. And I'm sure, just I'm sure it it just just any mitzvah done by a Jew today reduces God to tears. I'm sure it does. All the more so people who aren't raised with it and it's not, let's say, as meaningful to them. Um, But I would just say that, yes, ideally, absolutely, um, you know, mindless Judaism where you're not actually doing it because it's culturally nice or it's something that enhances your life is actually missing the fundamental point, which is that we do it because this is God's will. And this is God telling us, this, the, the Torah is God saying, this is who I am, and I'm giving myself to you, and therefore I want, I want you, I want you to, I'm a jealous God, I want you to be one with me, and the way you do that is by following my will, and so being conscious of that, but that's a, you know, that's a, that's a deep level, um, that's the ideal level to be at, to be putting on, uh, to fill in or lighting the Shabbat candles, because this is what God wants of me. Do I understand it? I try to make sense of it, but I do it because that's what he wants of me. Um, I think that's definitely the, um, the the place it's meant to be at. And, and actually, it's the most fulfilling level. You know, cultural Judaism is just a bit, I find, you know, it's, it's very limited. Uh, and it's also not sustainable because if it's just cultural, well, you take it or leave it. No, I, I, know, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. But it's, it's, it's a... There are a lot of topics that we've sort of opened up here. And Jewish culture today and how it sort of shapes us. Also, and you can tell with the people who are very much in the bubble, shall we say, and those who are outside now and our relationships towards it. And these are all important in terms of the influences that we have allowed ourselves. And we, I think as long as we're in control of them. I think that's a lot. You spoke about non-Jewish or less-Jewish friends, and I'm not, I'm not nowhere am I against it. But you have to be in control of what you're letting in. And that, that that's always that's always key. Otherwise, and well, it, I, you can I, draw lines if my if personal view is two things. The first thing, my personal view is, if you're confident in who you are, it shouldn't bother you. you know, look, I'm not gonna like, to, I'm not gonna be friendly or or become close friends with people who are constantly digging at my way of life and my values and beliefs. Not because I'm insecure about it, because it gets annoying and I feel like a bit disrespected. You know, it's just a bit tiring every few minutes there. You know, um. But 
so that's that's one thing but but i'm not i'm not afraid to have any discussion with anyone and by the way this thing about not questioning and worried about questioning is that not what the seder is all about what do we get to tell kids to do ask questions questioning is at the center because we're not insecure mm. about truth about reality and um but in terms of being friends with people uh, I, I, the other thing i've found also in terms of especially coming back from yeshiva as well that an important principle that i've always sort of um led by is i don't push my beliefs onto anyone i don't even want to um i, I if people ask me if family ask me or friends ask me about certain beliefs i'm delighted to talk about it with them but i'm never going imp- to and i think it's an important thing I'm never going to impose my views or beliefs on anyone just as i wouldn't want anyone to do that to me you know so as long as people you can have basic respect i think i think you're good yeah i think about it's like i'm i'm always and it happens occasionally but it always shocks me people are they ask me jewish questions and yet they they, they they're scared that they might offend me to go like to ask questions, not about my own Judaism, yeah, but about like key points. They said, "I don't know if it doesn't offend you, but do you mind if I ask you about is God real? Is the to- where does, is the Torah really real? Do we how do we validate it?" Yeah, I'm like, why would that offend me? Well, that, because, that's an amazing because, question to have. Because but, religions for a long time have practiced doctrine and avoiding, uh, you know, discussions. But it's that mindset and, that that I think, and I I was also guilty of it at times for sure. Well, it's like it's a that bit like mindset, when people well, say, I don't know where it comes, it's it's." Well, it's a bit Humble. like when people, when on Shabbat, if people come to my house and they're like, they get their phone out, like, oh, sorry, I hope this doesn't, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm like, they'll apologise to me. I'm like, why are you apologising to me? It's not my rules. <laughs> 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 I didn't come up with these rules. It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> uh, uh, thank, thank God, though, that we are secure that, that that wouldn't shock us. Yeah. But and I, I, I do respect when people make the effort to sort of hide their phones or... or where I could pile the right places. To yeah, but, but 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 do it but for that, him, not for me. I, even when they don't, just for me, I I I appreciate it. Not because I I need it. I just I just appreciate people respecting other mm. people. Mm. But yeah, I I, it's, it's, I don't know why someone think I would get offended. Then it's I think it's it's that attitude that is very that needs to be changed. Yeah, that attitude, the all or nothing attitudes, the fear to talk about God and Hashem in this this twenty first century world. Those attitudes, I, I don't know where they really come from. Maybe it's worth a deep dive into them. But I just think that they, they cause so much damage when they quit in the complete inverse. Because they could have damaged me. And maybe they, they, in ways they, they still do. Yes, maybe, but yes. I, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of um, misinformation, misconceptions about Judaism. Judaism is not a religion. It's not about mm. God saving us. Um, you know, or being saved. Um it's about bringing heaven down to earth. Um, there's plenty of misconceptions around reward and punishment. There's plenty of misconceptions around just God and miracles and science and all these things. And um, what are we going to do other than just try and spread good information? Please God. Please God. And I, I, I'm with this final sort of idea, which is because I do a lot of teaching with people who are quite young. And I was also teaching a year six class at age 10. I, I frequently teach some eight-year-olds. And I often wonder, what do I do if they ask me very deep questions? It happened once in a class last year. I was teaching about some sort of Jewish idea, maybe Pesach. And a kid asked me a great fundamental question about the authenticity of Torah. Mm-hmm. And it was an awesome question. I was so proud of the, question, the kids asking the question. But I also thought, if I go into that topic, I'm derailing the entire class. We won't get what we need to get done. It'll be a great chaval. In my split second, I'm thankful I did this. I, I went to the kid and I was like, that's an amazing question. And I said, they won't hear that question. I praised the kid. The kid felt so great that he asked the question. I said, it's an amazing question. And please, God, maybe next week we'll get back to it. I never did. <laughs> and I think if I tried to at that age, it would never work. The kid was about seven years old. But the pride in the kid's face that they thought this question and that they were praised for it. I like to think that that sort of approach absolutely. can, I don't can do think, a world of good. Absolutely. It, I believe I don't believe in shutting down any kind of question, and frankly, it's not going to work in this generation because we value above all else self autonomy. As mm. we, uh, this is how we, we begin. We're ending how we began, which is we value self autonomy, and anything that suppresses that, we're suspicious of, and we want to run away from. So, that's why everything should be questioned with boldness, uh, with confidence, because we're not afraid of what happens when people dig because 
it may be we the, the league for is, gold. No, because this is this is reality. Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can find more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manus Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Kiva Tatz, and many more. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Ollie Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.